0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. All of the gospels tell this story a little bit differently, but here in the Gospel of John, which we're working through this year, uh, this is really the starting point. This is the point at which Jesus Emerges on the scene as a leader, a teacher, a rabbi, a prophet, a worker of miracles. And so this is quite a significant point in the Gospel of John, the first public leadership role that Jesus has. And his ministry here begins in quite an inconspicuous sort of a way. It's a miracle that happens in an ordinary home. Uh, nothing fancy about this particular venue. It happens in a pretty ordinary village up in the north of Israel. This was a little village, a Jewish village called Cana, Cana of Galilee. And uh, I visited Cana, or at least where they think Cana was. I visited there in 2006 when I was in Israel. And uh, we're going again this year. There's a group of us from the church going to Israel in July. I won't go on about that because I don't want you to be jealous. But we're going to go there and hopefully visit Cana again. Uh, nobody's quite sure exactly where it was, but there's a, there's, a, there's a place there, a village there where they think that's probably where Cana was. And uh, the great thing about Cana today is that the region has basically capitalised on the unique marketing opportunity presented to it by this particular passage, and now there's a winery there. So predictably, right, there's, a, there's an established winery there and you can, you can, have, you can buy Cana wine. Cana of Galilee wine. And it's a special wedding wine. It's a lovely dry red. I haven't tasted it myself, but um, if you speak nicely to the people going on the tour in July, they might bring you back a, a bottle of Cana wedding wine, which you can bring. I personally think that there is an untapped marketing opportunity, though, in Cana that I'm interested in exploring. I reckon we should be selling bottled water in Cana. I think you... Why, why pay the money to produce wine? You just, you just market the water and you tell people to pray. And... <laughs> And who knows? Who knows what miracle might unfold? So if anyone wants to give me some venture capital for that particular business, that's what I'm going into. So Jesus gets invited to this wedding in Cana. He, he along with his mother and uh, some of his disciples, at least the disciples that he has so far, they get invited to this wedding and they, and they go along to this wedding. Now, weddings in the first century Middle East were quite different to our weddings today. Uh, for, in the first instance, the ceremony happened late in the evening. And then the bride and groom didn't go away on their honeymoon immediately, they stuck around. And for several days, the bride and groom had an open home. So often this would last up to a week, and day after day, the guests would just keep on coming back. And it was the responsibility of the bride and the bridegroom to keep on providing hospitality, to keep showing them a good time, to keep the food coming, and most importantly, to keep the wine coming for days and days and days on end. And so Jesus and his disciples and his mum go along to this wedding, and we're not quite sure at what point in the wedding celebration this happens, but at some point a major crisis occurs and they run out of wine. Now, in this context, in this cultural context, that is not just a small little social awkwardness. That's a huge problem. That's a huge social problem because hospitality... In this first century context, in the Middle East, as it is today, hospitality is a huge part of culture. One of the most important responsibilities that people had and have is to be a good host, to provide good hospitality when you are called on to do that. It's a sacred duty. It's a central social role in a person's life. And this was a big deal for the bride and groom. This was the moment, probably the defining moment in their lives, when they had to be good hosts and they had to provide hospitality and they had to make sure the food and the wine did not run out. So to experience a shortage of wine, for the wine to run out, this would have created huge social shame for the couple. It really would have. It's not just a little thing, it would have created a major social problem for them. It would have meant a lot of social stigma for the couple and their wider family. They would have been shamed. This was a heavily honor, shame-based culture, and this would have created a huge amount of shame for them. It might have even been considered to be a bad luck omen on their marriage. So this was a real crisis for the bride and groom. And into this situation steps a mum. Had to be a mum who comes in to solve the problem. And it's Jesus' mum. And there's this lovely interaction in John chapter 2, between Jesus and Mary, Jesus and his mum, one of the few times that you see them interacting like this in the gospel. And so Jesus' mum comes to Jesus and she simply says, in verse 3, they have no more wine. That's a classic mum statement because what she really means is, you better do something about it, right? But all she needs to say is, they have no more wine. And she knows that her son is going to get the message, right? Now, Jesus makes this reply to Mary, which sounds a little bit harsh to us. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It sounds quite harsh for Jesus to use that word woman, doesn't it? Your, your, your kids probably aren't going to get very far if they tried that with you, parents, just to call you woman. But the term itself, the Greek term gunai, is, is not particularly harsh. It's not as harsh as it sounds. In fact, there's another time in Jesus' life when he calls Mary Woman, anyone know when it is? On the cross. Yeah, when he looks down at Mary, his mother, and says, Woman, here is your son, talking about John. And from that point, John takes her into his home. So that's Jesus' way of looking after Mary. That's a very endearing moment, very intimate moment there. And he uses the same word. So it doesn't mean any disrespect, contrary to how it sounds. It's not harsh. It was a common way, a generic way, sure, but a common way of referring to a mother, a woman in general. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the hour Jesus is talking about here is his death. When, when he uses that phrase in the gospel, my hour or the hour, he, he's talking about his impending death. So it's interesting, even here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his death is probably three plus years away. He's got the sense of that that's where it's heading. He's got this strong sense, this is where it's all going. It's all building to his death. And he knows that because this is the start of his public ministry, that now with this miracle, there's an irreversible chain of events that are set in place that is going to lead him to Calvary. It's going to lead him to Golgotha. So he has this time frame in mind. He sees it in a way that Mary doesn't. And I think that explains why he's a little bit reticent here, to suddenly just launch into doing a miracle, suddenly just get this kick-started. You know, his mum's all keen. You know, she wants things to happen, but he knows in the bigger picture, this is, this is not going to end in celebration. It's going to end on the cross. Of course, there's the resurrection coming on the other side, but he knows that this begins the journey ultimately to the cross. So I think you can sense a little bit of reservation in Jesus. He's a little bit less than excited about starting this whole thing. But again, Mary's response is just classic. She just, the next thing she says is she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. So in other words, she just ignores Jesus. She's she, like, thank you for that speech, Jesus, about the whole, you know, now, just do whatever he says. Hurry up and do something about the wine, will you? You know, it's classic mum stuff going on here. So she just wants the problem of the wine solved. And like a good son, Jesus dives in and he, he obliges her and he performs this incredible miracle. He says to the servants who were there, get these jars and they get these six stone jars. We'll come back to the jars in a minute. Six stone jars, and he he gathers these jars together, he says, Take them and fill them to the brim with water, and take them to the master of the banquet, which which is really like an MC at a wedding reception. So the servants do this, they take them <clears throat> to the master of the banquet, and he tastes this wine. And lo and behold, what was water has become this. This is Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, this is 2011. I literally found this bottle of wine in one of the classrooms in Kiwi Block this morning when I got here. But I thought it was a sign because it says promised land on it. I thought that was too good not to come and show you here. Literally, I stole this. Some teacher out there is just drinking the good stuff. And, uh, but here it is. So I have to return this after the uh, sermon or else I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. That was made in South Australia, by the way. So that clearly is not the stuff that Jesus produced but he produced this incredible wine i don't know whether the six jars each contained it maybe one was merlot maybe one was cabernet sauvignon we don't know but it was the best wine that the wedding had had so far this was good stuff this was good wine and you can imagine like nobody knew where the stuff had come from except the servants and jesus and his mum but the mc didn't know what had happened And even the bride and bridegroom, I mean, how would they have responded to this? They're looking at each other thinking, did you organize this? Did you you have a rich uncle who sprung for the wine? What happened here? They don't know what's happened. All they know is there is a whole lot of really good wine that's just been created, and now the wedding can go on, and the celebrations can resume. And this shame, this deep shame that the bride and groom had experienced, because at least some of the guests started figuring out what was going on, that shame has been restored, and it's been transformed. And the celebrations go on. It's a great miracle. It's a, it's a heartwarming story. It's an extraordinary miracle that Jesus did. But the most extraordinary thing about it is not the act itself. It's that this miracle is part of a much bigger story. And that contained within this little story, these 11 or 12 verses in John 2, there is a much greater drama about what God is doing through Israel and through humanity. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his, in his essay on miracles. He says, the miracles are in fact a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. So in other words, the miracles, every miracle of Jesus is like a little microcosm of a much Biggest story. And then he goes on to talk about this miracle in particular. He says, God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into a juice which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus, every year from Noah's time until ours, God turns water into wine. That's interesting, isn't it? So in other words, in every vineyard across New Zealand right now, God is turning water into wine. From the water of the ground that the vine soaks up to be nourished, through to the fermentation process and eventually to wine, there is a much longer process that's taking place where water is being transformed into wine. The only difference with this miracle is that the whole process speeds up and happens immediately. And in the same way, C.S. Lewis is saying, this miracle is a close-up look at a much longer And bigger story that stretches almost the entire breadth of human history. Now to to understand the, the story, the bigger story that this miracle sits within, you need to understand something about the symbolism of wine and what wine meant, particularly to Jewish people. It wasn't just something pleasant to drink, it was highly symbolic. Wine was a symbol and it formed part of a picture and that picture sat within a huge story of what God was doing in and through and for the nation of Israel. Turn back, if you've got a Bible, turn back for a moment to Amos chapter 9. Here is a passage that draws on the symbolism of wine, and you start to get a picture of what Jesus is doing here. Uh, just to give you context for this, Amos is writing about a time in Israel's history called the exile. The exile was, was a period about, about five or 600 years before Jesus' day when many of Israel's best and brightest got carted away from the land, got deported, and relocated in a foreign nation called Babylon. They lost their land, they lost the temple that got destroyed and ransacked, and Israel was dislocated from their home and from their identity. There was a really dark time in Israel's whole history, one of the darkest times, when they lost their national identity and, in almost every sense, lost God as far as they were concerned. But here is Amos, one of the prophets, who wrote into the situation of exile and promised hope beyond that judgment, promised restoration beyond that exile. And here is what he says in Amos 9, verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. That's a beautiful picture. What Amos is saying is the exile is not the end of the story for Israel. That lasted 70 years, but the exile is not the final word. After the exile, there is hope. Israel is going to be returned. Israel is going to be restored. There will be this great homecoming. Israel will be planted back in its own land again. God is going to come back to his people. He's going to restore. He's going to renew. He's going to revive. He's going to resurrect this people. And one of the images that accompanies this great celebration, homecoming, return from exile, is the image of wine. There's going to be wine freely flowing. New wine will drip from the mountains, and flow from all the hills. Clearly that's figurative, but the image is there. This new wine, and it's an image of of bounty. It's an image of prosperity. It's an image of celebration and joy and abundance that God is going to bring about for Israel when they finally return from exile. Now that's the hope of the prophets. Fast forward... 600 years to Jesus' day. What's happened? Well, in one sense, the exile has ended. It only lasted 70 years. Israel was brought back from captivity. The fact that Jesus is performing this miracle in Israel, in Cana, shows you that. Israel is back in the land in many senses. And yet at the same time, there was this abiding sense that the real return from exile had not yet taken place. Israel was back in her land, but she was still an occupied nation. She was still under the boot of the Romans. She'd been passed from successive government to government to government. She didn't have her freedom politically. Israel was largely a peasant nation. There was a huge amount of poverty within Israel, as the wealth always flowed upwards towards the empire, and Israel enjoyed nothing of the prosperity, except for perhaps a few of the, the priestly families, the aristocrats. Largely, Israel saw nothing of the, of the abundance, of the bounty that the prophets like Amos spoke of. They didn't have this kind of freedom yet. They weren't established again as, as a great nation. They didn't have lavish lives. And so all these hopes of the prophets about Israel's restoration, Israel being Uh, restored and renewed in many senses people felt like well it hasn't really happened yet yeah we're back in the land but the great sense of what's supposed to happen hasn't quite come about so there was this expectation among many jews in the time of jesus that the true return from exile was yet to come that israel had been returned restored to the land but god had not yet returned to his people Yahweh had not yet come back in power to truly revive and bring about this restoration. And so there was this sense of expectation for the great return of exile to come. Now, against that backdrop, have another look at this miracle and look at the symbolism of what is happening. Here, against the expectation of return from exile, Jesus comes and at the beginning of his public ministry, he comes to a wedding and he turns water into wine what's he doing here what's he saying what's the symbolism that's going on without even saying it jesus is declaring the exile is finally over the long-awaited homecoming for israel is finally here god is at work and he has returned to renew and restore and revive his people the exile is over the judgment is over And now God has returned and he's come and he's going to pour out this new wine, this new wine of blessing, this new wine of abundance and freedom. It's here. And it's not just here for Israel. As John's gospel unfolds, this becomes clear that it's for the world now. This was the great twist. This is for the whole world, not just Israel anymore. It includes the Jews, but not limited to them. It's for all those who come to Jesus and who belong to Jesus. There's a restoration. There's a returning from exile that's happening for anyone who comes to Jesus and brings their life to him. There's renewal. There's a restoration. There's an abundance. There's blessing. And there's resurrection. It's all happening now in and through Jesus. He represents Israel's long-awaited returning from exile. Now to see what this actually involves, you need to look a little bit more deeply at one detail in the story. Let's come back to these stone jars that Jesus uses to do this miracle. These stone jars, he takes six of them, six stone jars. And John specifically makes a point of telling us these stone jars were used for ceremonial washing, The law of Moses required that Jewish people kept themselves at all times, as far as possible, ceremonially pure, ceremonially clean. This was not about hygiene. This was about a ritual purity before God. So that meant cleansing or washing or bathing themselves before certain activities and after coming in contact with certain people or places or things. So in a wedding situation like this, what that would have meant is that before every course of the meal, not just at the beginning, but every course of the meal, Jews would have washed their hands meticulously. One after the other, there was a prescribed way of doing this, washed their hands. They also, the host or the MC, would have washed the utensils that people would have eaten with, and they would have washed all the cookware that was used to prepare the food. And the water for all of the ceremonial washing came out of these stone jars. That's what they were used for. The very fact that they are stone is significant. That was considered to be the material least likely to contract impurity. So, there was a huge emphasis put on ritual purity, hand washing, and cleansing in order to be ceremonially pure, to be able to eat this food ceremonially pure before God. So, it's hugely significant, I think, that Jesus takes these six stone jars that represent the keeping of the law, observing the law, and he removes them from their designated usage and he uses them to bring about new wine. Isn't that a beautiful symbolism? That Jesus has taken the stone jars of the law and he's transformed them into the new wine of grace. This is a beautiful look at the old covenant. And the new covenant side by side, the the stone jars of the law transformed by the new wine of grace. That's what this new wine represents at its heart, is the grace that Jesus brings about. That's what this return from exile is all about. That's what the restoring work that Jesus came to bring is all about. It's an outpouring of grace into our lives. It's an outpouring of the new wine of God's grace. Because this cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing that, that these stone jars represented, the best that could achieve was an external cleansing. The best that could do was to make sure that you were ceremonially pure at a given point in time. But that said nothing about your heart. That said nothing about the condition of what's going on within you. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside you're all spick and span and you're keeping the letter of the law and it's tick, 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 tick. Inside you're a bag of bones because your hearts are far from God. That's the problem with ritual purity. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't cleanse the inside. But Jesus comes along and he pours out the new wine of his grace and he cleanses our hearts. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus cleanses us deeply from impurity, from sin, From our own brokenness, from our own selfishness, from our own foolishness and our own stupidity and all the things that we've done that have dishonored God and dishonored ourselves and dishonored other people, Jesus cleanses us from that deeply, deeply on the inside. He purges us from all evil, purges us from the impurities in our lives. He cleanses us and purifies us and stands us before God washed and clean and pure it's the transforming work of grace. You can't contribute to that. You can't produce that wine in your life. You can't, do it. you can't make restitution for your past that's going to give you that clean heart. You can't pay penance enough to cleanse your heart like that. It has to be received as pure gift. It just has to be received as pure grace. Nobody can pr- produce that wine. You just have to put yourself in a posture of openness to it and just receive it. Just receive it as a pure gift of God to cleanse and renew us deeply on the inside. No one else can do that for you. You can't do it for yourself. Only Jesus can provide that kind of cleansing. And that new wine, it's not just something that gets poured into our lives on the day or at the time we become a Christian. It's new wine because it's new every day. It's new wine that Jesus wants us to taste afresh every single day because we need it every day, don't we? We need it to cover over our brokenness. We need it to cover over our shame. Shame is one of the ways that the lingering effect of our brokenness just stays with us. We feel trapped in shame so often. You may have been a Christian for a long, long time. You may still feel riddled with shame on the inside because of something you've done maybe in the past, maybe a long, long time ago, something you've done, maybe something you did yesterday. You just feel a deep sense of shame about that. Maybe you feel shame because of something about yourself in the present, something you hate about yourself, something that you struggle with and battle with and you're ashamed of it. And you cycle through these things time and time again and it bottoms out in a deep sense of shame and self-condemnation, self-loathing, self-hatred, self-pity. That's shame. It's an awful feeling. It's an ugly feeling. But it's real for many of us. And Jesus comes to you like he comes to that bride and bridegroom. They were feeling shame as well. This was the most important day for them to provide hospitality for their guests, and they failed spectacularly. And it caused them deep, deep shame. But Jesus came to them just as he comes to us, and he pours that new wine. He pours that new wine of grace into our lives every single day to cover over shame, to transform shame into grace. I don't think that the transforming of shame happens quite as instantaneously as Jesus changing water into wine. I think it's often a long journey of of shame being truly and fully healed. But it begins as we decide that we're going to drink every day from this new wine. We're going to taste it every day. We're going to come back every day And we're going to center ourselves on these basic realities of the gospel, the basic realities of grace, that you are loved, that you are cleansed, that you're accepted by God. In spite of what you think about yourself, in spite of what you think others think of you, you're accepted by God. You're deeply, deeply loved by him. You are cherished. You're the delight of your heavenly father. And the scripture says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride... God rejoices over those he loves, and that's you. God's rejoicing over you. Those are the truths of grace. Those are the realities to center our minds and our hearts upon. You've got to stop drinking from the poisoned water of your own self-condemnation. You've got to stop drinking that stuff. That's bad wine. Those voices that keep telling you you are not good enough, that you're embarrassed yourself and other people and this thing you've done and it can't get any better. You've got to stop listening to all of that and find the ways to, to anchor deeply in the grace of God. Surround yourself with other people that are going to help you taste the new wine. They're going to speak it to you, remind you of it. Surround yourself with scriptures that are going to speak to you of the new wine. God's absolute unconditional love for you and how accepted you are. How completely forgiven you are by him, past, present, future, all of it taken away by by God, all of our sin. Surround yourself with these things so that you can every day decide to taste the new wine. Every single day. It's new every day. God's mercies are new every day. We're going to learn to drink it every day and really internalize the reality of grace in our lives. You know how much wine Jesus produced at this wedding? Anyone done the quick calculation? It tells us the gallons that these things held and you convert that into liters and so on. It looks like about 600 liters of wine So by my estimate, that's about eight hundred bottles of wine. Eight hundred of these. One wedding. That is pretty impressive. Who needs eight hundred bottles of wine at their wedding? People, yeah, one hand to the back, thank you. People would have gone home from this wedding with bottles of wine under their arms. You know, Cana would have been living off this stuff for months and months and months. But don't you just love the symbolism again of this? I mean, Jesus didn't have to produce that much wine. There's no need for 800 bottles. That's just excessive, and that's grace. That's what grace. It's completely excessive. It's just completely lavish. It's just over the top. It's abundant. Where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't outrun the grace of God. Nothing that you can do will ever bring God's grace to an end. You just can't exhaust the supply of God's grace in your life. There's nothing in your past or present or future that's ever going to make the new wine of God's grace run dry. It just won't. His love never fails. Never gives up, never runs out on me, as that worship song says. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. There is grace just freely, freely available for you. Doesn't matter how stupid you've been in the past. Doesn't matter how filled with regret you are. Doesn't matter how much you feel like you hate yourself in the present. God's grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. Doesn't matter how far the battle goes and how long it continues. God's grace is enough. It's going to cover over all your shame. It's a healing balm that gets poured over our life. It's a new wine that brings life and brings celebration and brings joy where there's only been pain. God's grace is enough. It's enough for us. And the best thing about grace is that the best of grace is yet to come. The best of grace is still in the future. I want to draw a quick comparison between this wedding banquet and one other banquet that we're going to enjoy one day. Flick over to Revelation 19 for a quick minute. Here's a beautiful picture of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a great wedding banquet. That's how the new, new creation is pictured. Jesus is going to be the groom, and we are going to be the bride. All of us together, not individual Christians, but together now as the church, the bride of Christ. And then we will be fully and completely united to Jesus. And, there, and there's going to be nothing but grace on that day. There's going to be nothing that contaminates our body, our spirit anymore. It's just pure grace as far as the eye can see. We will live in perfect relationship with God. We won't even have any proclivity to sin anymore. We won't even have any recollection of the things in our past that just chain us and shackle us in the present. It's just pure grace on that day. And that should breathe a bit of hope into our lives for the present. You know, some weddings you go to, there's a big gap between the ceremony and the reception, because often the, the married couple uses that time for photos, so they go off and you're kind of left to kill a couple of hours. I remember one wedding where there was a, a really big gap, and Anna and I and some other friends, we took off, and I don't know whether we just couldn't find another cafe to sit in or what happened, but we ended up at Cafe, of all places. McCafe, you know, drinking fairly average coffee, no offence to anyone who works for McDonald's, but you know, it was McCafe, and here we were in our wedding suits, And wedding dresses, we're looking great, we're feeling great, and we're at McCafe waiting for the reception to start. Well, it's a bit like our lives in the present, isn't it? We live between a wedding ceremony and a wedding reception. The ceremony's already happened. You know, we've been united to Jesus. That's happened if you belong to Jesus. You're already secure. But we're waiting for the wedding reception to begin when Jesus returns. We're waiting for the real celebration to start. And in between life sometimes feels like you're sitting at McCafe. It just sometimes feels like it's a bit average, and you're kind of ready to go, and you're dressed up, but here we are. But you know, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much pain there is, we know the day is coming when that wedding reception is going to begin, when the great wedding supper of the Lamb will start. Jesus will come, renew this world, renew our lives and usher us into the new creation. We know that wedding reception is there. So even though we live in this in-between stage between ceremony and reception and sometimes it's an awkward limbo kind of place to be and often it's filled with difficulty both around us and within us. This is a time of grace. This is an age of grace and it's an age to anticipate the greatest grace that is yet to come. When we truly and fully taste the new wine of God's grace in Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to taste the new wine because we're going to share communion together. And in our church, every week, Jesus does this miracle. He doesn't turn water into wine. He turns water into grape juice. It's an amazing thing. And we taste this every single week. Someone asked me last night, why does Shaw celebrate communion every Sunday. And I said it's because it it anchors us on what's most important. It anchors us in grace. It brings us back to our desperate need for grace every Sunday. Our, Our own brokenness, our own desperate need for redemption. It just anchors us in that which is most basic to our lives and to our faith. And as we take communion this morning, I want to draw you back again to this question about the stone jars. As I've put this message together, it's been those stone jars that have just kept coming back to my mind. And so let me ask you, What are the stone jars in your life? What are the areas of your life that need to be touched by grace? What are the areas? Maybe you're holding on to deep shame. Maybe there's just something in your life where maybe your relationship with God is just stale and dry and mediocre, and it just needs that, that new wine, that taste of new wine. Maybe there's something that's haunting you from the past. You cannot escape it. You need that new wine of God's grace. What are the stone jars? In your life. I want to encourage you as you take communion this morning, we take this this cup of grape juice and this wafer, and it represents the body and blood of Jesus, and it represents this new wine of grace. I want to imagine I want you to imagine you're just taking this new wine into your body, receiving the new wine of God's grace all over again. Your life is like one of those stone jars. And Jesus is coming today to do exactly what he did at Cana all those years ago, to turn water into wine, to take away the law and bring grace to take away shame and bring grace, to take away whatever is weighing you down and leading to brokenness in your life and to bring the new wine of God's grace. Allow yourself to really ingest it. Allow yourself to really internalize that this morning. Allow yourself to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for grace. And we thank you that it's not a thing, it's not a commodity, it's you, Jesus. You are the new wine. And so Jesus, I pray, I'm really conscious this morning, we're talking about things that in some way are so elementary, and yet it's the simplest things that we often have the hardest time grasping, and the hardest time really absorbing into our lives. So I pray this morning that the simplest truths would come to settle in our heart in a new way. I pray for every person here who needs to know in a fresh way this morning that you love them, that Jesus loves them. And that no matter what they're going through, they're held in your arms. I pray, God, for anyone, and it's all of us this morning, we all need the new wine of your grace. God, some of us are here, we're feeling empty. Some of us are here, we're feeling full. Some are feeling closer to you, some further away. But, God, we are all in desperate need of the new wine of grace today. We just come thirsty. We're just thirsting for the outpouring of your new wine. God, your love, your grace, your mercy to be poured afresh into our life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you pour grace so bountifully into our lives. Jesus, would you come and turn water into wine in our lives again this morning? We pray it in your name and for your sake, not ours, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.